good morning. It's good to be here this morning and thankful for this awesome, beautiful, bit chilly, but nice morning where we can gather together as God's people, which they've been doing for, for thousands of years. We stand in a long history and tradition of God's people gathering. And so I'm excited to uh, open God's word and share it with you today. And if, if you're a guest here at Hamilton Baptist, obviously things look different uh, as they normally do, but we're, we're so grateful that you're here today. And hopefully you'll stick around and chat with somebody who's sitting beside us and they can tell you more about the church and we can learn more about you as well. Now, if you're familiar with the movie, The Princess Bride, which I'm sure most of us are, the bad dude, Vizini, if, if you remember, what's, what's the one word that he keeps saying throughout the entire movie? Inconceivable. And eventually this goes on and on and on till you remember that one scene, he yells it again, inconceivable. And Montoya replies back to him and he says, you know, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And there's memes galore all over the internet that use that phrase as well. But on a more serious note, I'm afraid that sometimes there's another word that we use all the time and those around us. And we think we know what it means, but in reality, we actually don't or we have some bad misconceptions and that's the word god g-o-d god now you would expect me to talk about this after all we are a church and we're gathering together but and i think most of us think we know what we're talking about but i'm persuaded that's not always the case i mean we hear it all the time right we're in a, a political season there's an election coming up we hear the word god used by both sides all the time, but what do they actually mean when they talk about God? And so I think maybe even now more than ever, we as Christians, we need to be certain and articulate and clear what we mean or who we mean when we're talking about God. And this is why one of the reasons we're, we're people of the book, as Christians have commonly been called. We're a church who gathers together under the word of God to receive the word of God. The book of James says it's like looking in a mirror each week, looking at it, seeing where we're gone wrong what's, and what we need to clear up, any misconceptions. And so I pray that's exactly what would happen today. So even if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, I pray that you would once again receive God's word and pray that if there are any misconceptions or false ideas that, about God that you may have, that they would be corrected today. But also maybe you're here today and you don't know God. Maybe you think you know God or you don't even claim that. But I, I would ask and I would pray that you would at least consider, contemplate these things and consider who he is even this morning. So if you have your Bible, and, and I hope you do, would you please turn to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And while you're turning there, let me, let me catch you up on what's going on in the book of Exodus. So the Bible begins, and, and this story in Exodus is awesome. It's a narrative, it's a story, and it's here to shape or inform us of who God is and what he's like. And the Bible begins, of course, with Adam and Eve and creation. God created all things good. But in our rebellion as human beings, when we rebelled against the God who created us, we sinned. 
And we see this story unfold through the book of Genesis, which Pastor Stephen has been taking us through. And we see these figures pop up like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God comes to them and he says, through you, I'm going to restore the world. I'm going to bless the world. And we see that story picked up in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus opens up by reminding us that the people of God or Israel, they're actually in Egypt. They're not in their land. They're under a foreign king. They're oppressed. They're in slavery. And so you begin to see this tension of God's promise to restore the world through these people. But it doesn't look like that's happening. They're in exile. They're oppressed. And then out of nowhere comes this seeming character named Moses. And to be honest, he's not all that great looking. He seems to have a speech problem. And and God says he's going to use him to rescue his people. And then it doesn't work out. He says, Moses, he appears to Moses in a burning bush. And we get this beautiful scene in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses listens to God. He hesitates, but he listens. He goes before Pharaoh, who was this mighty king. The Egyptians revered him as a god. Moses goes and says, hey, you, in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, you're to let the people of Israel go. And what is Pharaoh's response? I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who the Lord is. I'm not going to let the people go. In fact, because you came and asked me that, I'm actually going to make their labor more intense. I'm going to oppress them even more. And so we get to chapter 6, and it's this, seems like a failed plan. Moses did what God asked him to do. And so what's going on? Let's pick up in Exodus chapter 6. But first, I'd like to read the last two verses of Exodus chapter 5. So after all this happened, Moses' first try is a failure. It says, Moses, in chapter 5, verse 22, he turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. When God's timing and process don't align with our expectations, this passage calls us to consider or to look at God's name, God's story, and his mighty acts. So we find ourselves in a situation of crushed expectations. And here's the main idea I want us to get for today. When God's timing and his process don't align with our expectations, we need to look at God's name, consider his story, and look to his mighty acts. That's what this passage is telling us to do. And that's how we're going to walk through this passage today. So first we see these crushed expectations, which we just read. Moses is saying to God, Lord, why have you done evil to this people. It's not aligning with my timing God. And he's really going after the character of God. He's saying you don't seem to be holding up your end of the deal. And then he goes on to say. Not only is there a problem with God somehow. But there's a problem with God's chosen instrument. Moses. Moses says you're not only not doing this. But me. Why did you choose me to do this? Why did you ever send me? And so Moses is questioning the very character of God and God's timing. 
but he's also questioning God's means or methods or his process. And it's interesting because it's in the midst of this very difficult situation. And I hope you feel the tension of the text. Moses is crying out, pleading, you said this, God. You told me to do this, and you said this would happen. But it's not happening. Moses asks the difficult questions, and God graciously responds. Look what happens in verse 6. We, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. So God doesn't rebuke Moses. He doesn't scold him. Like a father coming around his child, it's as if he puts his arm around Moses and said, Moses, Moses, I got this. And he says to Moses, in a sense, watch this. He says, look, now's the time. You will see what I will do to Pharaoh. I think it's a beautiful picture of how God oftentimes handles our doubts and our questions. We can bring those questions to God. The Bible has a whole genre called lamentations. The Psalms are filled with lamentations. When this world isn't making sense with how we understand who God is and his purposes, we can go to him and ask the hard questions. And God in his kindness and his graciousness, he comes and responds to Moses and it's glorious and it's beautiful. In verses two through five of chapter six, we see God's response to Moses assuring him. And then furthermore, in, in verses 6 through 8, we see what Moses is then to go back and say to the people of Israel. But it's in this season of crushed expectations. God shows up in, verses, in verse 1 and says, look, I'm, I'm going to make this happen. Watch this. And notice how God begins. Notice how God begins to reassure Moses there in verse 2. It says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And, and notice how this ends in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to you to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so God's message to Moses and the message to his people begins with this statement by saying, I am the Lord. And it ends with this statement saying, I am the Lord. And in between those, he uses it another two times. And so this is really significant, especially given what Pharaoh said earlier. What? I don't know the Lord. I don't know who he is. And it seems as if Moses first needs to know who the Lord is before Pharaoh does. It seems as if God is reminding him of who he is before he goes to Pharaoh. Now, don't. Don't freak out on me, but we need a little bit of Hebrew, just a little bit of Hebrew to help us out this morning. And I think it's actually going to be fun, and you're going to say it with me, okay? So when the Bible, typically when we read in the Old Testament, like we see there in verse 2, that God spoke to Moses, that word God is actually the word Elohim. Can you say that with me? Elohim. Let's try that again. Elohim. That means God. So whenever the translators... Of typically whatever version you're using, they see the word Elohim in Hebrew. They translate it as G-O-D, God. 
And this can refer, and it often does, refers to the one, the true God of Israel. But it, it also can refer to, to other gods or other spiritual beings. For example, in Exodus chapter 12, we read about the Elohim of Egypt, the gods of Egypt. Or in 2 Chronicles 33, 15, we see that Manasseh, King Manasseh, he removed the foreign Elohim or the foreign gods. So it oftentimes refers to the one true God of Israel, but it can also refer to these other lesser beings as well. It's a title. Elohim is a title. So why then, what is going on when God spoke to Moses and says to him, I am the Lord. Now this is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Can you say that with me? Yahweh. So we have Elohim as a title. And then we have Yahweh, which is actually God's personal name. For in Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says, For Yahweh is your Elohim, or the Lord is your God. He is the Elohim of Elohims. There's nobody like Yahweh. There's nobody in his class. He is the most powerful. He alone is the creator of all things including any other Elohim that are out there. And so I hope that distinction will help you see why God is he's not just using multiple names, but he's actually making a very important point. So Elohim, God spoke to Moses. He says, I'm Yahweh. That's my name. That's my name. It's a personal name. And what this means is, is very important and it's significant for understanding this passage. Typically, names aren't that significant for you and I. Now, maybe you have a family name or a biblical name, and that's important to you. I don't want to undermine that, so don't get upset at me. But typically, names today aren't as important as they were in the ancient world. They typically had a, a more helpful meaning. For example, if you were to look up what the name Cody means, you would find the word helpful. Like, my name means helpful, or it means pillow. That's not that helpful, right? It, it really doesn't, like, when you see that, if you were to just Google, what does Cody mean, and you're trying to understand who I am, you wouldn't find that, ironically, helpful at all. Rather, you'd be like, why, why did they name him after a pillow? Why? why? Now, I, I like my name. I'm thankful for my name. And even, even if you were to look up my last name, Snyder, you know what that means? Well, it's, it's from German, Schneider, and it all got transitioned when people came to America. And it means tailor, like a, like a guy or, or a girl that fixes clothes. And again, that's not very helpful if you're trying to figure out who I am as well. I, I don't really sew. But Yahweh, on the other hand, is extremely important and extremely significant. When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And then when we say the word Yahweh, what that means is that he, talking about God, he is who he is, and he will be what he will be. That's really significant. We could talk about many things about the meaning of what it means to be I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything or any outside power. He's all-powerful within himself. 
He wasn't created. He himself is the source of all things. But think about this, and especially how is this helpful to Moses in his situation and the people of Israel and your and I situation today? I think it's this, is whatever attributes are true about God, that's who he is. He is that. So we read in the Bible that God is loving. It's not that he is loving, but we see in the New Testament, he himself is love. He's the very definition of love. Or we read in the Bible that God is just. It's not as if he, he's sometimes just or sometimes he's unjust. He is the very definition of just and justice. Compare this to yourself. Compare this to me. Right? Let's say that I am a helpful person, and I hope I am sometimes. But even if I'm helpful, I'm only helpful sometimes. Even if you are loving, guess what? You're only loving sometimes. Just, and if you don't believe me, just hang out with somebody longer than a day. You'll figure that out. You become good friends with somebody, you learn that they're not always the most enjoyable person to be around, right? Or sometimes in marriage, right? It's all, it's all roses and then you get, you get married and it's wonderful and great. But you learn things, especially about yourself, that you didn't realize before. You're sometimes nice. I'm sometimes caring. I'm sometimes generous. We could go on and on and on. Human beings are only sometimes what we are. Yahweh, the Lord, he is always who he is. Now can you start to see why this may be super helpful and encouraging to Moses as this story unfolds? Yahweh is what he is. When can you depend on a human being? Sometimes. Sometimes. When can you depend on the Lord? Always. He's Yahweh. He is who he is. But he moves on from his name. And let's keep reading. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Then it says, I, he goes on, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So he moves from his name to his story or his bio. If you really want to get to know somebody, a name is a great place to start. And God's name is super revealing and significant and helpful, unlike most of our names. But we need more, don't we? We need to know more than his name. What are you like? This is why when you're introducing yourself to somebody or they're trying to get to know you, we, we ask questions, right? Oh, where, where are you from? What do you do? Do you have a family? Etc. It goes on and on. We're trying to get information. We're trying to figure out others' stories so that we can get to know that person. This is why there are bios on, on Twitter and social media. And just for fun, again, if you Google the name, and unfortunately he's not here today, but if you Google the name Stephen Karn and you go to the first Twitter that pops up, this is the bio. A Cornish actor, a director, a singer, and a filmmaker. Now, I might not know Stephen Karn as, as well as some of you, but that is not the Stephen Karn that I know. 
And again, if you look up the word or, or my name, Cody Snyder, you, you look that and the first guy that pops up on Twitter, what you will find in his bio is a world and Canadian champion bull rider. And I'm not Canadian. So we need to understand each individual person's story, right? If you want to get to know me, you need to understand where I'm from, who I am. Same is true of you. And this is exactly what God is doing in this story. To make things even clear, God goes on to explain who he is, who he's interacted, who his family is. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. I'm that God. You know how I work through human rebellion? Go, go read the book of Genesis. You know how I work through unqualified leaders to bring about my purposes, my plans? That's my story. I'm that God. You can see how this would be encouraging to Moses, who himself doesn't feel qualified or even adequately, adequate to be used by God. Well, just go read the book of Genesis. You'll see people just like Moses throughout that entire story. And the good news for Moses, what God is saying is, Moses, the story isn't over. In fact, it's getting better. And I chose you to be a part of it. Notice what he says in verse 3. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. This is the word you're probably familiar with. El Shaddai. God Almighty. But by my name the Lord, or here we are again, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, what God is not saying is that this is a brand new name that they never would have heard about before. That wouldn't make sense because the book of Genesis uses the name Yahweh multiple times. And even back in Exodus 3, we see that, that phrase come up. The point is cotton continuity right God is tying himself to the past and so it wouldn't make sense to say but they didn't actually know me what he's saying is that God's name is now going to be more fully known than it was before this is where we get the term progressive revelation as God reveals himself in scripture revelation he does so slowly and steadily it's progressive and now what's about to happen to Moses is about to reveal more fully who God is than the patriarchs who knew him in the past. One commentator said, in Exodus, the word know is frequently used not of receiving new information for the first time, but of experiencing for oneself the reality of the truth being conveyed. So in Hebrew, the word to know usually has a deeper meaning. And it's more about experience. This experience that's about to happen, you're going to more fully know. And so by beginning with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is emphasizing this ongoing relationship with his people. This wasn't just initiated at the Exodus. This has been going on since the beginning of time. And notice what he goes to. He says, this, this is the same people I established my covenant with. To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, verse 5, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. So he ties himself to the patriarchs to make it crystal clear to Moses who exactly this God is. But he's also tied to this promise and his presence, right? I made a promise to Abraham 
Moses. I made a promise to Isaac. I made a promise to Jacob. I made a promise to your descendants. And remember, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I won't. Indeed, I can't break my promise. But also his presence. And this is very helpful as we think about who God is. And of course, we're not talking so much today about the God's being as the Trinity, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's true. But we're more asking the question when we ask, who is God? What are you like? And don't you find so much comfort in verse 5? I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I haven't forgotten about my covenant. Sometimes we have this deistic and distant understanding of who God is. Even as Christians. Like God is up there in the clouds and sometimes he intervenes. Sometimes he cares. Sometimes he answers prayer. But that's not the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God is involved and present with his people. And could you imagine how reassuring this is for a moment at this season? Wow, that same God who made his promise, who keeps his promise, who's with his people, that's who's talking to me. The story of the patriarchs is evidence for God's faithfulness and why he's trustworthy. This was important for Moses. This is important for us. I think sometimes we think, why doesn't God just drop out of heaven and and handle this situation? Why doesn't he just wave his magic wand and, and things will be taken care of? Well, what's interesting about the whole story of the patriarchs and Moses is that God uses human beings. God uses people. You may look at the Bible and think, wow, that it's kind of messy how God's plan is unfolding and, and how he's working and how his purposes are coming to pass. And I would agree, it does look kind of messy. But the reason is it's messy is because he uses messy people to accomplish his purposes. Could, could God drop out of the sky, even if he were to do that, and, and take care of all the situations and bring justice and peace? Yes, he could. But that's not how he works. And so if you're in a situation, you're in a struggle, you're in a difficult situation, you're trying to be faithful to God or, or find God, and you're expecting him to drop out of a cloud, that's just not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that he uses human beings like you and me to accomplish his purposes. He wants to shape and form his people to be like him. And that takes time. We don't like time. So if you see God as this guy who's just trying to get as much product as he can out in the fastest amount of time, that's not who God is. He's forming and shaping you and I as his people. And again, that takes time. That seems to be his top priority. But we move from God's name in reassuring Moses to his story or his bio. He's he's teaching us. He's reminding us. He's informing us. He's shaping our understanding of who God is and what he's like. So finally we see these mighty acts that he's about to do. So in verse 6, the scene shifts from God speaking to Moses and assuring Moses. Now it shifts. Here's what you need to go back and say to the people of Israel, Moses. Here's what you need to go tell them. Remember, the people of Israel already heard Moses' pitch. He already showed up, said this is what's going to happen. And they're like, okay, Moses goes before Pharaoh. 
and it doesn't work out. In fact, the people were quite mad at Moses. The foremen or the leaders of Moses, listen to what they said back in chapter 5 after the the first failed attempt to, to get out of Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 21, it says, They said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So imagine going before the people, saying, God's going to rescue you. God's going to liberate you from this oppression, from this slavery. And it doesn't happen. In fact, the situation gets worse. And no wonder the people are mad at Moses. Saying, you made a stink in the sight of God. So it's in that setting that God is now telling Moses to go back to those people. And this is what he's to tell them. Say to the people of Israel, verse 6. I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He's promising redemption. God's saying, I will redeem you. But furthermore, verse 7, I will take you to be my people And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Say, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you into relationship. And then verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And so he tells Moses, go back to the people in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord, and proclaim to them that God is going to redeem you. God is going to bring you into a relationship with him. You'll know God. You'll know exactly who he is. And he's going to give you rest. You're not going to be in a foreign land under a foreign king anymore. You're going to be brought into the promised land where you will have rest and you'll be able to be a light to the nations and showcase my glory and my goodness. Verse 7, you shall know that I am Yahweh. You will know that I am the Lord your God. And it's as if he signs it with his name. I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh. How will this happen though? I think verse 6 is key. How is all of this going to unfold, this this redemption, this relationship that God is promising, and this rest? How is that going to happen? Well, look at verse 7, sorry, verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm going to provide salvation through judgment. If you look in Exodus 13 after the plagues, the 12 plagues of of Egypt, which we would say are, are pretty mighty acts of God. Moses says that the Lord redeemed us or brought us out with a strong hand. But he does it through judgment, doesn't he? And this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in even today. I would trust all of us. We would want wickedness. We would want corruption. We would want sinfulness. We want it gone. We want it destroyed. We want those who do evil, those who oppress others. We want justice. 
But how does God, this is the dilemma of the Bible, this is the dilemma of us as humans. How does God take care of the evil in the world without getting rid of us at the same time? Because you can look at the world and you can see evil out there and evil over there and bad news over there. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, we can look in our hearts and see that same evil. And when we start saying they need judgment, they need judgment, they need fix, we can then look in the mirror and say, I do too. And so how does God take care of the evil in the world while still keeping his promises, while still providing salvation? Well, if you read on, and maybe you could go read this today or later this week, you could look through the plagues. The plagues are mighty acts of God. God acts through his servant Moses. And what happens? We don't have time to go into all the details, but ultimately Pharaoh is, is not just saying, you guys can go out if you want to, Israel. He's saying, get out of here. Leave me alone. Yahweh was showing who he was through his mighty acts. And the story goes on, of course. God, God brings them out of Egypt. He redeems them. He liberates them from oppression. He brings them into a relationship. We see this if you go read Exodus 20 and the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. God says, I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord who redeemed you. Therefore, here's how we live in my family. Here's what it's like to have the good life. If you follow my statutes, you'll find life in them. And he's bringing them to the promised land. That's what the book of Joshua is about. He's fulfilling his promises. But what happens? The people are still sinful. They're still rebellious, just like you and I would have been. God sends judges. He sends kings. He sends prophets. And I hope at this point in the story of reading Exodus 6 that you can start to see the giant shadows beaming down from the cross of Jesus. Because if we really want to know who God is, thankfully we don't just have the book of Exodus, but we have the entire canon or the entire book of the Bible. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, and we begin to understand more and more as God more fully reveals who he is, we see that you cannot get a fuller and more better picture of who God is than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This Jesus of Nazareth, he shows up and he starts saying things that only Yahweh or the Lord of Israel says. Like, you can worship me, I, I forgive sins. And he starts doing things that only Yahweh can do. Starts casting out demons, he's, he's walking on water. So Jesus shows up and he starts talking like the Lord. He starts acting like the Lord. And this is precisely what led to the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. He's blaspheming. And consider the name of Jesus. Do you know what the name of Jesus means? I'm sure most of you do, or many of you do. It's from the Hebrew, the Hebrew name Joshua, which means, and you can hear it, Yah. It's part of Yahweh's name in there. It means Yahweh saves. So this person shows up, his name is Jesus, it means Yahweh saves. And do you know how the book of Matthew opens up after this beautiful genealogy? It says, you will call his name Jesus, Mary. Why? He will save his people from their sins. It's as if a new exodus 
a new freedom from bondage has arrived. And he ties, Matthew ties this back to the story. You, you remember how the book of Matthew begins? It doesn't just begin by saying Jesus and, and goes on. It gives this long genealogy that we often think is quite boring to read. But what the Bible is doing is showing us is that Jesus is part of the story that's been happening since, the time, since God's plan of redemption began. You look at it, you open up son of Abraham. Interestingly enough, when Jesus is born, there, he, he's in danger, right? Do you remember when Moses was born? Pharaoh wanted to kill all the little boys. And then when Jesus is born, this kind of new Pharaoh figure, Herod, is trying to get rid of all the boys. Jesus goes down to Egypt to escape, and then he's brought back up to the land. He goes up on a mountain just like Moses. Moses goes up on a mountain, receives the law. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on the mountain and says, You heard it said this, but I say to you, as if a new Moses is here, a new Exodus. His name is Yahweh saves. His story is that same story that the Bible's been portraying. And his mighty acts, as great as the Exodus was, Jesus' mighty acts are even greater. And he too provides salvation through judgment. Do you remember as Jesus hung on the cross, what was he doing? Well, he was taking our judgment, the judgment of God's people. He was taking our sins upon himself. That rebellion that we all have in our hearts, that evil that we all have in our hearts, that tendencies that make us want to do the things we know we should not do, but yet we still do them, that power, the Bible calls that sin. And it deserves judgment. And Jesus on the cross takes that judgment on our behalf. For anyone who would repent, for anyone who would trust in Jesus, who would say, he is indeed Lord. He provides salvation by taking our judgment. This theme of salvation through judgment isn't just in the Exodus, but is on the cross. So how does God get rid of all the evil in the world? Without getting rid of us. Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross. He bore our sins. He took our judgment. But we know that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was crucified. He bore our sins. He was buried. But he rose again. He conquered sin and death for anyone who trusts in him. This should make us sing really, really loud. This should make us excited. Jesus got up from the dead, and it says he ascended back to the Father. He's at his right hand where he is the king. Pharaoh is not our king. The devil is not our king. Jesus is our king. And through Jesus, we find freedom from our sins. We find a new family and a guaranteed future. Just like what was promised to the people of Israel. Find liberation, you'll, you'll be my people and a guaranteed future. So as we, as we close this down today from Exodus 6, I, I hope you can see the beauty of how the Bible all fits together and how it, it's extremely important for you and I. And even this 35-year-old hundred text from Exodus is extremely relevant for your life and my life. So the question is, do you know the Lord? Maybe you're con so concerned that those people out there don't know him. But you don't actually know him. 
first. If we read on in Exodus 6, what we see is it doesn't exactly go as maybe you and I would, as you and I would like. Moses in verse 10, uh, verse 9, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The, our bondage to sin tends to blind us or deafen us from hearing the voice of God. And so I wonder what sins are in your life? What act of rebellion do you cling to that is blinding you from coming to Jesus or deafening you from hearing his voice? Because today you're hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and he's saying, come to me. Don't let your sin, don't let your amount of despair hinder you from coming to Jesus. There's freedom to be found in Jesus even today. And the beauty is that despite Israel's rejection, despite Moses' uncertainty, God continues his plans. He's gracious. He's merciful. And just as he brought Israel into a, a family relationship, as we read earlier from 1 Peter, God has called us a chosen people, a holy nation. And so we get to invite others into God's massive story of his love for all peoples. And we get to live and our identity is found in God's people. And because whenever God saves us, he not only unites us to himself, but he unites them to his people. That means he often works through others for our sanctification, for our growth as a Christian. So if you find yourself isolated, not in community, not in fellowship with other Christians, and you wonder, why am I not growing as a Christian? That's because this idea of me and God and nobody else is foreign to the Bible. You need you, God, and his people. He often uses people for you to grow. I know in, in my marriage that God's sanctification and his work in my life often looks and sounds like my wife. And I'm sure many of you can agree with that as well. Right? God puts people in our life to show us things that we need to change and to show us God's grace, means of grace. You need the body of Christ. So who do you need to talk to today? Who do you need to reach out to today? And finally, not only freedom and family in Jesus, but a future. If you look at, and this is the last verse that we'll read, Revelation 21, verse 3. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I, John talking, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So that promise to Moses that I will be your God. You will know me. You will be my people is guaranteed in the new heavens and the new earth. A guaranteed future. So who is God? Despite our misunderstandings and not having the same expectations. I trust that this passage today you'd remember God's name. Look to God's story, who he is. And remember his mighty acts. Namely, and centered on the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we, we come to you and, and we know that you are the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God who promised to undo all the bad things that are happening. The God who promised to bring justice. The God who promised to bring forgiveness. And we know that this story as it unfolds is found in the person and work of, of Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that he not only saves us from our sin and our bondage, but he brings us into a family. So we thank you for our other brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. We pray that you would use one another to strengthen each other, to help us grow, to become more like Jesus. And, Father, we thank you for the future, the solid future that we have in Jesus. I pray that this would compel us. And cause us to live on mission for Jesus. That we would proclaim this gospel to the nations. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus name. Amen.